Uh, If you guys have your Bibles, let's turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, we are continuing to look at Paul's letter to the Romans, the good news of the gospel, how man could be righteous with God, that God would look at you and say, right, good, justified, not just passable, uh, but accepted, that your whole life would be uh, an acceptable act of worship unto him. And today we're going to read Romans chapter 4, and we're going to actually look at the whole chapter together. Uh, Romans 4, and we're going to look at this, uh, this chapter. And as we read through it, you can look at your Bible, look on with the people next to you. It's 25 verses. And what I want you to notice is a couple of things. I want you to notice the repetition. What words are repeated? What I love about the Bible is the Bible is super readable. Uh, a lot of people say, I don't understand the Bible. And it's usually the same way that... Uh, People who've never ridden a bike don't know how to ride a bike. But once you experience it and you've done it repeatedly, you realize, oh, this makes a ton of sense. It's, it's not that difficult. You should put the effort in. And what I want you to see today is Romans 4, 1 to 25. It's not just 25 random sentences put together, but it's really, really clear and encouraging and helpful uh, as we'll see. So Romans 4, 1 to 25, I'm going to help us by just kind of marking each paragraph. So you see there's kind of four paragraphs and I'll kind of, uh, I'll mark off each one so you can kind of see like, oh, there's some different themes that Paul's putting together. So Romans chapter four, let's read it together. Verse one says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works his wages, sorry, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Second paragraph. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Third paragraph, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Final paragraph. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, 
but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. The presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As has been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Amen. This is God's very word. Let's pray before we talk this morning. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the reality of your word. We are thankful that your word is true and that your word shows us what reality is like. We are even grateful now that we can pray to you because of Jesus Christ. That because of him dying in the place for our sins, you are our father and allow us to commune with you as our father. Lord, this morning we need your help. We need confidence. We need encouragement. We need comfort. We need forgiveness. Lord, you graciously offer all of these things. And so now, Lord, we pray that you would provide those for us through your word, that your spirit would be at work in the preaching and in the hearing, and that we'd become more like your son, more aware of your truth, and give you all the glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Is something better simply because it's new? Is something better simply because it's new? Now, we love new things. And when I say we, I don't just mean like we as in you high schoolers. Even adults love new things. Uh, We love, uh, you know, if we get a pay raise so we could buy a new car or move into a new home. And I'm sure many of you love when you get something new. You love your new iPhone. You love that new gaming system you got. You love those new kicks that you're rocking. Some of you love August because August means back to school, which means back to school shopping, which means new swag, right? Like that's, that's for some of you. You love that stuff. You love things that are new. And that's true for all of us. We love the new phone, love to listen to new music, try a new restaurant. However, What ends up happening every single time is we find out that the things that are new often become like the things that were old. I need a new iPhone. This camera isn't, or these cameras are nearly as good as those cameras on your phone. I don't like this song anymore. It's it's been overplayed. Uh, That restaurant has gotten boring. It turns out the new things are just like the old things. They're just at a different spot on the timeline. They haven't reached the point yet where we're burnt out by them. And so maybe it's good for us to be suspect of the idea that something is better simply because it's new. If anything, it seems that they're just the same. 
However, there's another reason to be suspect of the idea that newer things are necessarily better. Now, I've been talking about material goods, but we're talking about ideological uh, uh, you know, currency. When we're talking about ideas and the way that the world works, is newer better? That's what some people think, right? So there's, there's the group uh, of people in our country that think like, uh, it's okay for someone to choose their gender. It's okay for someone to marry whoever they want to marry. And what do they call themselves? They call themselves progressives, right? We're newer. It's better. Don't you see how progressive we are? We aren't outdated. But the truth is what we are not looking for is newer. What we're looking for is reliability. Is it true? Does it actually work? If you were to go into NASA, you would not find computers uh, that are from the newest release by Apple in the last few years. You would find computers that are multiple decades old. Why? Because they work. It's reliable. Uh, The same is true. Like some of you have grandparents that have had the, the, the same appliances for decades. And you're like, I've seen this washer and dryer forever. I mean, it was old when I was a kid and now I'm older and it's still old. Grandma, why do you still have it? And what will she tell you? They just don't make them like they used to. Why? Because appliances now break every four or five years. The old ones would work. They'd be reliable. And the same is true for how you think about the world, for how you think about philosophy. It's not just, is it new? If it's new, how do we know it's proven? The question is, is it true? Because things that are old and are proven are typically true. What's my point? What's the point of this discussion? Well, this idea is exactly behind Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. So we've been looking at Romans so far. We finished three chapters. And what we saw from Romans 1, 2, and 3 is this. All men, all people are under condemnation because of their sin. Because of our rebellion against God, we deserve the wrath of God. And there's no works we can do to take away the wrath of God. You can't be good enough for God to be Uh, to accept you in his sight. Good works can't save you. And yet, chapter 3, verse 21 says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. That is, there's a way to be righteous. In verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That through faith in Christ, verse 24, that all can be justified. Again, verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. These are religious terms. So maybe you're like, what is righteous and justified? Righteous sounds like a surfing term. And uh, what do we think about this? It's, It's the idea of being right in God's sight. That there is a way that you can absolutely be forgiven by God, embraced by God, that he has nothing but the kindest and warmest affections for you. And that is if you are righteous in his sight. Perfect sinless, not just that you've never sinned, but viewed as if you've always lived perfectly. And to be justified is for God to say, you are righteous. You are justified by someone else. You're justified by a foreign justifier, God who says, you are right. And friends, this is what we need, right? We need this. And the way that Paul has been arguing, he's saying that you are justified by faith in Jesus. Isn't that good news? That we could be viewed because of our trust in Jesus and his death on the cross as if we've never sinned. We sang this just a few moments ago in communion. It's in my notes. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can we do to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide 
brighter than snow you may be today. That by trusting in Jesus, putting your faith in him, you can be totally forgiven of your sin. That your sin will be separated as far as the east is from the west and remembered no more. And yet in light of this teaching, right, justified through faith and faith alone in Jesus, there are naysayers, the doubters, the haters, whatever you want to call them. There are those who would disagree. So for example, if you were talking to a Roman Catholic about being saved by faith in faith alone, a Roman Catholic might tell you, maybe not, Roman Catholics are all kind of over the map with what exactly they believe, but they might say something like, you think you're so biblical, your religion started in the 1500s. You're just leaving a religion that Martin Luther invented. We have a religion that's been around for 2,000 years. And then you might have others who are the Jews who are saying, well, no, I don't know if your religion started in the 1500s, but it definitely started 2,000 years ago by the overzealous disciples of a rabbi named Jesus. See, these disciples and Paul invented this justified by faith religion. And so therefore what? It's, it's not an old religion. It's a relatively new religion. Therefore, it's untrustworthy. In fact, be, I bet there'd be even a third group, students who would say, no, that's not true. Justification by faith was Jesus's invention. So it is 2,000 years ago, but Jesus invented that we're saved by faith, by trust in Christ and in Christ alone. And what Paul wants to prove this morning in Romans chapter 4 is that righteousness by faith is an older concept. It's not some uh, Johnny-come-lately religion. It's not like a fad diet that just kind of here and it seems like it works until it doesn't. That it really works because it's true. It's proven. It's been around. That salvation by faith and faith alone has always worked. And how does he prove it in this text? He's going to find an example. He's going to prove it through one person. It's the name that you read over and over again as we read chapter 4. He's going to use the example of Abraham. Abraham. Now you know Father Abraham. He had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, I guess. So how anticlimactic, right? Abraham, what is this? If you're like, if you've not been to church and you're like, what is that song you're saying? You're not missing out on anything. Trust me. You're totally okay. But we need to understand this. Let's understand a little bit of Abraham. So we're going to Jump to Genesis twice today. Let's do one of them right now. So if you've got a bookmark or a pen like I do, we're going to bookmark your spot in Romans if you want. You can go to Genesis. Actually, I'm going to use my real bookmark, and I'll bookmark the pen for Genesis. So go to Genesis 12. Go to Genesis chapter 12, because we need to understand just a few things about Abraham before we understand what Paul's trying to do. Let me explain again. The reason you can know that your faith actually saves you is not just because you really feel like it'll save you. It's because it's always worked. It's tested and true, like that dryer that has been in your grandma's garage for decades. It's just proven time and time again. Paul is proving that salvation through faith alone is proven and true and happens again and again and again. So Genesis chapter 12, here's the God's call to Abraham. It says, now Yahweh said to Abram, this is when he's Abram for Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you 
And him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as Yahweh had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Okay, let's jump over now to Genesis 17. Genesis chapter 17. Here we go. This is later in Abraham's life, as you're going to see. It's 24 years later. Genesis chapter 17. It reads this. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, which means exalted father, uh, but your name shall be Abraham, father of a multitude of many nations. For I have made you father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will, ma- and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So what we have here is this promise to Abraham that in chapter 12, he's going to be the father of many nations. Uh, the promise that through him, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And then even 17, it develops a more. There, there will be a kingdom. Now you can go back to Romans now. We'll go to Genesis in a few minutes. But what I want you to see this morning is Paul is focusing on Abraham's response to the promises of God. That's where we're at. And it's that, that response to the promises of God of Abraham that Paul wants you to see and he wants you to emulate because he wants you to see this is how true religion has always worked. How can you be confident that trusting in Jesus actually saves you? Or if you're here and you're not a Christian, how can you really believe that if you just confess your sin and trust your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, that God will forgive you of your sins? The answer is that God has always worked that way. And that's what Paul is trying to prove to us this morning. So back in Romans chapter 4, we're going to follow Paul's argument in this chapter, and we're going to look at three different points. Okay, three things I want you to notice in the text. Let's first examine the righteousness of Abraham. So if you're a note taker, let's, let's look at the righteousness of Abraham, question mark. I don't know why I have questions on these ones. You can ignore the question mark up there. But let's look up at the righteousness of Abraham. Okay, chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? The question is, what shall we say about Abraham's righteousness? What shall we say about his life, his holiness? Now, how did he get righteous? And it's really interesting that Paul's picked this person, right? Because if you think about the people that the Jews exalted, right? They, they had a love for Elijah. He was the greatest prophet. He, they had a love for David. He was the greatest king. They had a love for Moses. He's the great redeemer who pulled them out of the land of Egypt. But Abraham, well, he's the father, right? I mean, if you were with us when we studied Egypt, he, it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Every single Jew can trace their descent back to Abraham. And therefore, all of the people that have ever been the people of God and extent are following in the pattern of Abraham. So the question is, how was Abraham made righteous? And therefore, what does that say about how we are made righteous? Well, we notice three different things. First, we see that Abraham is righteous by faith, not by works. He's righteous by faith, not by works. Verse 2 ponders the question, perhaps... 
Abraham was justified by his works, right? And if he was justified by his works, he'd have something to boast about, but not before God, all right? He's saying perhaps Abraham was just a good guy. Maybe he was righteous and faithful and moral, and perhaps God sees how good Abraham is and said, that is why in my sight you're accepted and embraced. But that's not the case at all. Take a look at, let's now go back to Genesis the last time, Genesis 15. This is the story Paul's going to quote, and we need to look at it here. Genesis chapter 15. It reads, After these things... The word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. This is after this great war that Abram is victorious in. And God says to him, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, Now remember, Abram knows he's supposed to be the father of a nation. He's supposed to have people come through him at this point. He's old. He's an old dude at this point. And he says, O oh, oh Lord Yahweh, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and the member of my own household will be my heir. God, you told me I was going to be the father of a nation, but what do I do? I've had no children, and it's not like I'm some spring chicken here. I'm a young buck. I'm not a young buck. I'm an old guy. So what, what do I do? What's God's response? Behold, the word of Yahweh came to him. So this man, Eleazar, like your nephew, he will not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And God brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. That is, look, Abraham, you, you, you do not believe, maybe you don't believe this promise. Let me tell you, you will have a son and your offspring will be like the stars in the sky. And what's Abraham's response? Verse 6, and he believed Yahweh and he counted it to him as righteousness. He believed the promises of God and God counted it, considered it. Some of your versions might say reckoned it as righteousness. We're done in Genesis. You can go to Romans 4 and we'll stay there the rest of the time. This is the verse that Paul picks up. So maybe Abraham was justified by works, verse 2. But Paul says, no, no, verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed. That's the same word for faith. He had faith in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Counted. The word there for counted is an accounting term. It's a term you'd use for sorting things out. So when you get older one day and you'll do your taxes, you're going to look at your income and you're going to look at losses. You could talk to Jetty about all these things. You have tax questions later. None of you are employed. You don't know what you're talking about here. But, right, so you'll look at things. All, here's the job that I worked. Um, this is an asset. Maybe you'll own a car. Uh, maybe you'll own a house one day. These are things that are in the plus column of my life. And then there's student debt. Uh, those are the things that are in the loss column of my life. It says that Abram's faith, God counted that as righteousness. That, that in his faith, he said, that makes you righteous, perfect in my sight. 
Now, what do we mean by counted? Again, let's think now if he counted that. So God, it's, it's not that I earn righteous by, righteousness by works, but it's God who counts my life as righteous. How then does that have an effect on my pursuit of holiness? Look at verse four. It says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes, has faith in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So here Paul breaks it down more. Now, if it's about being counted, if in the Old Testament God counted him as righteous because of his faith, how does it affect things now? Well, it certainly wouldn't mean work. Because if you earn your reward, it's not seen as a gift. It's not something that's counted as righteousness. It's something that you've earned. Let me explain. How many of you have a job? Have a job. Okay, good job, you people. The rest of you, figure it out. Dudes, you don't talk to girls until you have a job. And ladies, don't talk to dudes who don't have a job. Anyway, that's not in this text, but um, we'll move on. How many of you get paid every other Friday? Every other Friday you get paid? That's your job? That's, that's most places, okay? And imagine your boss comes up to you one Friday, and you go, Hey, I, uh, you know, you've been working really hard around here. You've been doing a great job. I just want to let you know I got you a little something special. Hand me an envelope, and you're like, Let's go. Christmas is going to be awesome. And you open it up, and it's just your regular salary that you get for, you know, your 15 hours a week, or $15 an hour, $15 a week for some of you. It's just your regular salary, right? Do you, do you feel like you got something special? Do you feel like you got a gift? No, all they give you is your normal paycheck that you what? That you earned. Well, that's what Paul is arguing in verse 4. He is saying the one who works, his wages are not counted they're not considered something different they're just as what was well, what was due to you so that's not how it worked for abraham and that's not how it works for us because if god counts us righteous by faith that's not how it works here let's let's use another illustration here let's say it's christmas morning you're right you're excited you've got your pjs on you huddle around the christmas tree at the bottom and, and your parents start divvying out the gifts i don't know if you live in a family that goes one at a time or they're all at once and you start noticing you have your gifts and you start noticing that your sister has a considerable amount more than you. Like your pile is here. She's got like stacks on stacks. And uh, she's got all sorts of presents. And you're wondering, well, maybe it's just the monetary value that's the same. The gifts are different. And you're looking like, no, it's definitely not. My parents love her more. And, and you ask mom and dad, like, what happened? Like, I mean, I love you, but she got way more than me. And your parents say, well, she was just a much better kid this year than you, right? And she was. You need to figure this out. So what happened there? There's two things. Were those then Christmas gifts or were those sort of Christmas wages? They, they became wages for how good you did. And your sister might begin to think, well, I earned these. Her, her thankfulness is much uh, lower than. Why? Because she felt like she earned those gifts. What Paul is saying is that's not the way God justifies. If you can use the word counting, the way that you use the word counting is like if a, a three-year-old's playing basketball and they shoot the ball and it just hits the bottom of the net and they celebrate and you go, what? Yeah, we're going to count that. Good for you. One point, right? Happens at camp with some of the teams that aren't doing it. So like, yeah, let's just go ahead and count those points, right? That's the idea here. We're going to consider something as righteous. We're going to move something, not to its natural position, but somewhere it no, not normally is, and we're going to count it as righteousness. 
And so it's not by our works. No, no, no. What we need is not to earn righteousness. We need to be considered righteous. We need to, be have, we need to have our sins forgiven, not put in our negative pile, and for God to count us as righteous. That's exactly what God does with Abraham, who was not a good man. We could look at Genesis to see that, but we don't even have to look at Abraham. David, uh, the other important person in the nation of Israel, says this, verse 6, he says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Listen to this. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not, account, will not count his sin. Do you notice what you need? What David doesn't say is blessed is the man whose deeds have been paid for, uh, whose sins have been paid down. Blessed is the man who has worked off his sin. Oh no, what you need is to not have your sin counted. What you need is to have your deeds forgiven and covered and for someone to count you as righteous, not to be, make yourself righteous. Friend, if you're here and you're newer, that's, that's a little bit of the story of the Christian faith. People say all the time Christians are hypocrites and to some extent we all can't avoid acting hypocritical. Uh, but they'll say they're hypocrites because they say they're good people and don't live like it. Friend, Christians are not good people. We are not people who have made ourselves righteous. We've had somebody else, in spite of ourselves, declare us righteous by trusting in another. I wonder if that is true for you today as well. If you think that you're accepted by God because of the way you're better than others or the way that you do better works than others, or if you realize that those works will never save you. You come with nothing on your spiritual resume that God would count you as righteous. It didn't work with Abraham. It's not going to work for you either. Let's look at the second thing. The righteousness of Abraham, we see that he's righteous by faith, not by ritual. By faith, not by ritual. The word circumcision is used a lot in verses 9 through 12. And circumcision, more than just a uh, modern good health practice, for the people of Israel uh, was a sign. It was something done on the eighth day to every male child. It demonstrated that they were the people of God who belonged to God. It was done uh, as a ceremony for every single child. At least it was supposed to be, though we read in Exodus that they didn't quite obey the, the way that they ought to. And the question that's being asked here is, does it save? Okay, is this blessing, this blessing of not having your sins counted against you, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? What about this ritual that we do every single year? Now, verse 10 says this, How then was it counted to him, to Abraham? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Good question. When was Abraham viewed as righteous? Before this religious ritual that they do? Or after this spiritual tradition? And the answer was before. In fact, 13 years before. Now, Genesis 15 happens 13 years before Genesis 17, when circumcision is introduced as a sign of the covenant. And so what's, what's the point here? Then what's the, what is the point of circumcision then? It's saying it wasn't a ritual. What, what was it? Well, verse 11 says, He received the sign of circumcision as a seal, as a symbol of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was uncircumcised. That is this. It wasn't this ritual that saved Abraham. 
It was a sign of the work that saved him. That is faith. It wasn't the act that saved him. It was a picture of what had actually saved him. Faith. And the other purpose behind it too for Abraham, as you see, is so that all people, whether circumcised or uncircumcised, uh, Jew or Gentile, religious background or irreligious background, could be saved in the same way that Abraham was as well. That's the point it's trying to make. Uh, It's so important because this paragraph very briefly summarizes what? That rituals, religious traditions, don't save people. And so you've got some religions, uh, Roman Catholic, that uh, young people have to go through the process of confirmation, all sorts of prayers and baptism and other ceremonies of a certain age. Uh, You have Mormons uh, that go through the sacraments. Uh, You need to go on a missions trip at a certain age. You need to get married in the temple. Uh, You need to be baptized on behalf of the dead. There's all these things, and what they do is there are different ways that people are trying to accumulate spiritual wealth before God thinking by doing these ceremonies, I can be saved. The same thing happens at our church. If I do baptism, I'll get closer to God. If I take communion, it'll make God happier in my life. But friends, we see that's not true. In fact, look at Romans chapter 6. Just jump ahead two chapters, and you'll see baptism. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? We'll talk about that in a couple weeks. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized in his death? Now stop there. That word baptism doesn't necessarily mean water there. The word is immersion. The word is you're placed into Christ in the same way that you're placed immersed under the water. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So when somebody gets baptized, it doesn't add to their spiritual wealth. There's not more spirituality that goes into their bank account. What it does is it shows it's a symbol of what's already happened. That they've died to their old self and have been raised in newness of life. So baptism is like a symbol. Uh, Much like you've heard this before, a wedding ring is a symbol. I am not married when I put this on, unmarried when I take it off, married, unmarried. That's not how it works. It's a symbol that I'm married. What made me married are the covenant is the covenant that I made, but this is a symbol of that. The same is true for baptism. The same is true for all sorts of what would be religious rituals. None of those save you. Well, the only thing that saves you, what's it say again, is faith. Faith is what made Abraham righteous. Let's look at the third one. The third one is this. How is Abraham righteous? Righteous of Abraham. He was righteous by faith, not by knowledge. By faith, not by knowledge. Paul here addresses something else that was brought up already in the first three chapters. What about the law? Look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The law is something the Jews felt that gave them an inside scoop into what was happening with God. God gave us the law. God spoke to us. Therefore, we must be special. But when was Abraham righteous? Oh, the law would come hundreds of years after Abraham was made righteous. He was not made righteous by the law. He was not made righteous by this special knowledge. If that had been the case, it says verse 14, uh, that faith is null, right? So if it is, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, then faith is null. In other words, faith doesn't mean anything. You just kind of earn your way. 
and the promise would be made void. What's it mean by the promise made void? Well, that means this. If, if righteousness came through the law, then the promise is undone. Why? Because nobody could keep the law. That's what we've already been studying in the first three chapters. That's what you, that's what you know experientially, is you can't be holy on your own. Verse 15, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. The law brings wrath. We know we're sinful. All the law does is inform us of how sinful we are. And so what do we see, friends? Three things again. How, how is Abraham righteous? It's by faith. It is not by works. It is not by ritual. It is not by knowledge. And so I would just ask you here today, those of you who've grown up in the church, why do you think you're saved? Do you think you're saved because of your deeds or because you've been baptized or because of how you know, much your family has served here or because of your knowledge? None of those things saved Abraham and he was a stud. They will not save you either. They cannot be the basis of salvation. I, I time and time again run into older people. I just talked to a guy this week who says he's struggling with his faith. I'm not sure if he would call himself a Christian, but it's so interesting how often those people grew up just kind of regurgitating everything, but not really owning them, not really owning the faith that they regurgitated, and how often they come back and say, well, I'm not sure where I really am. Student, do not trust in your works or any of these things. If you're here and you're uh, visiting with us in the last few months, you've been brought along with somebody else, this is the Christian message, and this is what makes the Christian message different. You are not good enough to be saved. You are lost in your sin. And no amount of good deeds, no amount of spirituality, no amount of memorization will make you right. It didn't work for Abraham. It will not work for you. That's point one. Let's move to our second scene then. Let's look at secondly, the example of Abraham's faith. The example of Abraham's faith. Paul wants to put forth Abraham as an example. Verse 16, this is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, here it is, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. Right, That you might know you're saved if you share the faith of Abraham. And what he does is he gives us an example. And some of you remember as a kid, your, your parents would tell these uh, little stories of morality to help you uh, either do likewise or to avoid certain behavior. The boy who cried wolf, right? You know the boy who cried wolf. Boy in the field, wolf, wolf, townspeople come out. He laughs about it. And does it again, wolf, wolf, townspeople come out. He laughs about it. There's not really a wolf. Third time a wolf shows up, he cries out. Nobody comes and he gets eaten. And your parents tell you, you don't joke about dangerous things or you'll be eaten. And, and you say, okay, I won't do that, right? right? It's a negative story. Well, what Abraham's supposed to be here is a positive story. It's teaching us, walk like Abraham, because if you act like the boy who cried wolf, you'll end up like the boy who cried wolf. And if you act like Abraham, you'll end up like Abraham, righteous. You'll end up accepted by God. You'll end up knowing that there's nothing to fear at the judgment seat that you will be embraced as a child of God. So how can we know? Well, what is this faith like? And how do we know he wants us to, to walk like this? Take a look again at verse 16. It says that Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now we, maybe some of you are, but most of us here are not ethnically Jews. 
We are not genetically related to Abraham. So when he says the father of us all, what does he mean? Well, he means that we, we might walk the way that he walks. It's like when Jesus says, um, you know, you're, you're children of the devil, your father to the Pharisees. It's not that the, the Pharisees were the literal offspring of the devil. Uh, the Pharisees walked in the way the devil walked. That's why they could call him uh, their father. Uh, but again here, it's saying, no, we want you to have the faith that Abraham have. Take a look at verse 17. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations. We read that in Genesis chapter 17, right? It is that we might walk like him and have faith the way that Abraham has faith. So how do we do this? How do we know if we have faith like that? Well, let's look at Abraham's faith again. Verse 17. It says, in the presence of God, of the God in whom he, here's the word, believed. That again is the word faith. Believed in this God who gives life to the dead and calls to existence the things that do not exist. In verse 18, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As has been told, so shall your offspring be. We see here this, these words, belief, uh, that's the word for faith, and we see this word hope. The idea of faith there is the word trust. Uh, if you've heard me say that before, it's, it's trusting in something. And then hope, the word hope, has the idea of certainty. So uh, I'll give you an example, uh, how to, to misthink about faith or to misthink about hope. Uh, this week, I was listening to AM570, Dodger Radio. I was trying to win tickets, I'll be honest, I was greedy. I was ready to just to ditch all of you Wednesday night and go to the Dodger game, but my call didn't make it through. And, uh, and as I did, what music are they playing? They're playing George Michael's, You've Gotta Have Faith. And they're like, Dodger fans, you've got to keep the faith. You've got to keep the faith. None of us kept the faith throughout last night. We knew it was over, right? It was just done before it began. Why? Because that's not really what, that's not what real biblical faith looks like. The human idea of faith is fickle. The human idea of hope is uncertain, right? I hope I graduate. I hope I get accepted into this school. But that's not what this is. This has to do with certainty. So it's not about I hope, it's having hope. This is my steadfast confidence. This is my trust. This is my faith. That's what Abraham had. He has confidence. The question is, where? Where is this confidence? Well, first, looking at verse 17, his confidence is in God, right? Of the God in whom he believed he had faith in. This God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So if you don't know what faith is, it's, it's steadfast confidence in the character of God. It's a confidence in God's character, right? He knows this is the God who gives life to the dead and calls to existence the things that do not exist. The second thing he has hope in is the promises of God. In hope against hope, uh, that he should become the father of many nations, because he was told, so shall your offspring be. That is that he, though again, let's back it up there. He trusted in the character of God. He trusted in the promises of God. This is where his faith was. And we read that it was an unflinching faith. Because it did not seem according to human logic that this would happen. Verse 19, it says, He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Again, in chapter 17, when he's promised, he's 99 years old. And when the Bible says you're as good as dead at that age, 
I mean, you're really as good as dead at that age, right? He's not some strong shepherd man anymore. This is 25 years almost after since he first met God. It's not just him that is dead, but take a look again. It says, and when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, the word there for barrenness is deadness. Uh, That's the idea that there's no way these two people are having children. But what does it say? He did not weaken in his faith. No, verse 20. No, uh, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Again, he trusted the promise of God. He grew strong in the faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Abraham's faith is in God's promise. His faith is that God will do what he said he's done. And here's the result. The result righteousness. Verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham is made righteous by trusting in the promises of God, that God does not go back on his promise, that God is truth, that God has the character and the ability to deliver on his promises. And he said, look, it looks crazy. There is no way I'm having a kid, but I trust in the promises of God and God counted it to him as righteousness. And so Paul's point, you ready? Paul's point here is being made. He's saying, this is not a new religious system. You're thinking, how do we know righteousness by faith will work? How do we know I can actually be forgiven of all my sin, not by works, not by harming myself, not by reciting prayers and songs, but simply by faith? How do I know it will work? That's how it's always worked. That's how it's always worked, by having faith in the promises of God. But then Paul's not done. Paul's not done yet. We see here salvation by faith is rooted in trusting God. It's how it's always been. But thirdly, let's look then at the faith of Abraham's children. The faith of Abraham's children. Or third, you could call it like this. Why does this matter to us? Why does this matter to us? Okay, that's great, Josh. You've given me a great story about Abraham. I got a lot of Old Testament. I uh, basically got a carpal tunnel turning back and forth between Romans and Genesis. What does this matter to us? Why this story? Because it's teaching us about what we can expect if we have faith like Abraham has. Verse 23. But the words, it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Again, these are written that we might know that if we walk like Abraham, that we act as the true offspring of Abraham and have faith in the promises of God like Abraham, we might know some things. What might we know? Verse 24. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who, has, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Notice again, counted. It will be counted. And again, to us who believe, faith. That is, you also can be counted righteous, totally forgiven, absolutely viewed as sinless by God through faith. It's not that you've made yourself righteous. It's God has counted you as righteous in his sight. That again, you can have the hope of avoiding eternal wrath and enjoying eternal bliss 
by faith. That is good news. And we learn some things about this faith and why it works. Look, here it even gives us a picture of the gospel. It talks about Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses. That is, Jesus Christ was delivered for your sin. He was delivered. That is, God handed him over, quoting Isaiah 53 here. God handed him over for our sin. That you did not atone for your sin. You did not pay off your sin. You did not die and then go in the future to pay off your sin. Your sin was paid off because Jesus was delivered up for that on the cross. That it, Jesus isn't just amazing that he died for the sake of people. He died for the sake of sinners and he died for your sin if you're in Christ. It's amazing that all our sin could be paid for. He was delivered up for all our sins and he was raised for our justification. That is, him being resurrected from the dead by the Father is proof that the payment worked. If you've ever been with your parents before when they've paid with a credit card and there's that moment where it says processing, 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 transaction accepted. Okay, Jesus goes to the cross to pay for your sin and the resurrection is proof that the transaction was accepted. Your sin is paid for. Jesus was no liar. It is finished. That's good news. That's the gospel. That the sin we've committed this week, the thoughts and the words and the deeds that we've done that have worshipped self instead of God are paid for and done away with forever. But how? Well, by faith. By faith in what? We could say by faith in Jesus. That's absolutely true. I've trusted in Christ. Uh, whoever believes in me will not perish, will have eternal life. We, whoever believes what we believe on Christ. But, but notice what it says here. It says, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. This is a faith in God. Abraham was righteous by believing the promises of God. And we are righteous by believing the promises of God. What has God promised us? He's promised us that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's promised us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. We'll read in Romans 5 that He demonstrates His love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's promised us that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus himself has promised that any who come to him, he will certainly not cast out. That he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Why does Jesus save? Why are you saved if you have faith? Is it because, well, I've believed the formula, you know, holiness, sin, cross, eternity. I believe those four things, I'm in. Oh no, student, you are a Christian. You are saved. You can know you're going to heaven. You can know that all your sins are paid for and all the sins that you commit this week are paid for. Why? Because God has promised it. God has promised that those who trust him 
he will fulfill his word. He has promised that all who turn to his son will have their sins forgiven. And we're trusting and banking on his promises. We're trusting and banking that he has provided a way, the only way through his son, Jesus. That's how we can know we're saved. That's how we know this faith works. Because it's rooted not on a new formula invented by Paul or Martin Luther. It's a formula that God has operated by forever because it's rooted in his very character. So what are the takeaways for us this morning? I'll give you three things this passage does for us and we'll sing one more song. The first one is confidence. You can know that you're saved. It's one thing to doubt your salvation because you look at your life and see that nothing matches up. But doubting our salvation should never be because we doubt whether or not God could save us. He has promised to save any who come to him. I was reminded, uh, Jude and I finished the Chronicles of Narnia books and we were reminiscing, Katie and I, last night. Reminded the the passage, we don't see it, where... um, Aslan and the White Witch have this secret conversation about uh, he's going to come and die in the place of Edmund, and Edmund's going to get to go free. And we don't get to hear that conversation till later. But as they're kind of departing, uh, the witch turns back and goes, how do I know you'll keep your word? And he responds by just growling, like the audacity. You are going to question whether or not I would keep my word? Oh, student, how can you doubt that God would keep his word regarding his son and your sin? How can you doubt that if you trust in him, that any of your sin still remains on you? How can you doubt where eternity will lead you if you've come to Christ when he's promised eternal life for those who've believed on his son? He never breaks his promises. That's why second, this passage gives us great comfort. It gives us great comfort. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, right, in light of all of this, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, what is your relationship with God like? Peace. There's no enmity. There's no war. There's no wrath that remains. You have been justified, so you right now have peace with God, ongoing as a believer. Oh, what great comfort that is to know that God is not against us because he gave his son for us and we've trusted in his son. See, what great comfort that is. We will never think that we're saved if we're fruit inspectors first. We should look at our life and Romans chapter six will challenge us to look at our life. But the first evidence of faith in Christ is always faith in Christ. And it's always and only by Christ that we know that we're saved. And we look to him to know that we have peace. Finally, what else should we take away from this passage? Rest. You can have rest. And when I say rest, I mean rest for the weary soul. Rest for the soul who's abused by sin. It's crippled by sin. That that both hates and loves their sin because you love rebellion, but you hate the person you are that despises what has become of your life because of sin and yet is ensnared by sin. The one who doesn't really want to approach God because they both kind of love their sin and and doesn't think that people know the depth of their sin. 
Student, this is a God who knows the depth of your sin. And he has promised that if you put your faith in Jesus, you can have forgiveness completely, immediately, and permanently. That Jesus himself says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. It's the good news that's offered to you. It's the good news that he will forgive you even today. If you say, I am a sinner, Christ, I need you to save me. That God will count you as righteous when you entrust your life to Christ. Why is that? Because he's promised it. And we can have faith that his promises will never fail. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, God, that you never change. But that you're a God who delivers on your promises. God, we do not deserve it. But, but by grace, you have promised salvation to those who put their faith in Jesus. Oh, how good it is to know that we can know for certain we are saved, not because of us or any sort of allegiance in our hearts, but because of you and your steadfast truth. Lord, thank you that you've accepted us in Christ in spite of ourselves. Lord, I pray that we'd have great joy and comfort in light of this truth, that it would lead to great holiness. How can we who are dead to sin still walk in sin? And Lord, I I pray even this morning that you would draw sinners to yourself, that they can know for certain their sin can be washed away through the promises of your word and through the death of your son. We thank you for Christ and for forgiveness. It's in Christ's name we pray.